We'll begin part two of exploring corporate identity design with the renowned team of Yvonne Chermayev and Thomas Geismar and their many successes in brand development. The vogue for logos was at its peak in the 1960s and early 70s, and corporations were under a lot of pressure to have striking symbols on which to hang their public image. The use of such a symbol by a bank provided the same reassuring uniformity that stamped franchises in the rapidly growing fast food industry. Brands and logos provided a quick visual cue to customers who responded to familiar and reliable products in an increasingly dense commercial landscape. Jermaine F. and Geismar Associates moved to the forefront of the corporate identity movement in 1960 and went on to produce more than 100 comprehensive corporate design programs, including projects for Chase Manhattan Bank of New York, Mobile Oil, the American Revolution Bicentennial, the National Broadcasting Company, and Rockefeller Center, just to name a few. While the Chase National Bank dated back to 18th century, the current logo was a result of the merger with the Manhattan Company in 1955. The mark was dated, cluttered, and not well suited to the growing number and variety of applications that the company required. The new symbol is made up of shapes whose systematic repetition forges an association of solidity. The interlocked form is heavy, bold, and confident. It had no obvious meaning. The symbol communicates logoness rather than any specific characteristics of the bank or its services. In response to a study of the bank's design and communication needs, particularly for urban signage, Shermayef and Geismar designed a distinctive extended sans-serif typeface for use with the mark. Shermayef and Geismar's solution for Chase Manhattan became a prototype for other financial institutions. It proved that a completely abstract form could successfully function as a corporation's visual identifier and, in fact, become a memorable character in the inventory of symbolic forms. One of Shermayef and Geismar's most far-reaching corporate design programs was for Mobile Oil, designed in 1963. Mobile had grown into a global concern, and the logo, designed to be trendy or just five years earlier, was already looking dated. The previous names of Mobile Oil and Mobile Gas were shortened to simply Mobile and became the trademark. In collaboration with Elliot Noyes, Geismar created the logo from three basic shapes, five verticals, two diagonals, and a single circle. The mark was developed from a customized version of Futura with a distinctive round red O separating it from other words. The geometric O wasn't so much a nod to the avant-garde typographic history as it was a basis for an entire system of cylindrical and circular components, canopies, pumps, display elements, and much more. The simple logo was the foundation for a major overhaul of all corporate communications, their advertising and their signage. It was a practical application of the concept of Gesamtkunstwerk, the total work, that captured so many artists' imaginations in earlier decades. Unimark, 
an international design firm with 48 design offices throughout the world, was founded in Chicago in 1965 by a group of partners including legendary designer Massimo Vignelli, who was at the time Unimark's director of design and the head of the New York office. Vignelli, and by extension Unimark, rejected individualistic design and believed that design could be a system of basic structures set up so that other people could implement it effectively. Unimark clients included Ford Motor Company, JCPenney, Memorex, Panasonic, Steelcase, and Xerox, just to name a few. The underlying grid was a crucial element for all Unimark visual identity systems. And because it was considered the most legible type family, Helvetica was heavily relied on. In fact, the typeface is so ubiquitous in Vignelli's designs that many people think he designed it himself. The Knoll program, directed by Vignelli, has become synonymous with his name and set the standard for furniture industry graphics for years to come. In 1967, Bobby Cadwallader retained Massimo Vignelli to create new graphics programs for Knoll. The resulting designs, based largely on a grid, provided the foundation for all basic communication needs, including stationery, business cards, stickers, tags, boxes, brochures, and four-color ads for trade magazines and publications like The New Yorker, Vogue, and Fortune. As recognizable and successful as the work of his predecessor, Herbert Matter, Vignelli's Knoll advertisements, price lists, and branding efforts gave Knoll an unprecedented international graphic identity. He once described the Knoll assignment as the most exciting and rewarding of his professional career. Perhaps the greatest measure of the program's success is the extent to which it continues to inform the company's public identity to this day. Vignelli's most enduring and visible legacy, though, may be the environmental graphics system Unimark designed for the New York City Transit Authority, the organization that oversaw the city's subway system. In 1966, the year after Vignelli had arrived in New York, the firm won a contract to consult on new signage for New York City's chaotic and confusing subway system. While there was no logo necessary, per se, the NYCTA recognized the need for a cohesive, unified identity system, much like those that were designed for corporations. Research and observation proved an invaluable part of the design process, as Vignelli's team worked to gain an understanding of the flow of people through the system. Unimark successfully engineered a color-coded modular system that drew from the strength of the international style as a foundation. The layout of the signage conveyed the necessary information with logic and efficiency. Vignelli's sign system had greatly simplified the visual language of the system, culminating in the 1970 publication of a comprehensive NYCTA graphics standards manual, detailing sign placement, colors, typography, and much more. When it was implemented in 1970, the official typeface was standard medium, which was the name by which Accident's Grotesque was known in the U.S. 
Standard was most likely chosen over Vignelli's preferred Helvetica because the MTA's in-house sign shop was better prepared to work with it. Throughout the following two decades, the implementation of the Unimark system proved to be a predictably haphazard undertaking, and Standard was eventually replaced by Helvetica. This was probably because Helvetica had by then become a more flexible alternative, given the variety of technologies used by the MTA in the 1980s. Like Edward Johnston, who redesigned the signage of the London Underground in the 1910s, Vignelli and Unimark brought clarity to a bewilderingly complex system. Clarity that is still appreciated by travelers in both systems today. One of the most publicly underrated yet enduring and graphically impactful projects was the Unigred system for the U.S. National Park Service in 1977 as part of the Federal Design Improvement Plan. Until that time, each park was responsible for developing its own graphics for posters, brochures, signs, and more. And you can imagine the visual chaos and confusion it might cause to visitors. The park's program was overdue for a new unified graphic identity system. Massimo Vignelli developed a logical, mathematically precise, systematic grid that could be adapted to nearly any poster application. And later, he did the same for the 150 handbooks the Park Service published. The Unigrid and Vignelli's extensive detailed design specifications unified hundreds of informational posters and folders used at about 350 national park locations, creating a cohesive look and feel from one park to another. Although the typefaces have changed over time, from Helvetica to a custom font, NPS Rawlinson, Vignelli's modular, extraordinarily flexible grid has been a legendary invention still used in the design community more than 30 years later. After Unimark closed its New York office in 1971, Massimo and his wife Layla founded Vignelli Associates. The new firm continued to implement the ideals of the Unimark philosophy of rational order through the use of grid systems and emphasis on lucid and objective communication. There's a fascinating documentary about Vignelli's career called Design as One that I'll also link to in the discussion board. In the United States, the original visionary behind the corporate identity movement, long before even the arrival of the international style, was Walter Papke, the owner of Container Corporation of America, or CCA, which manufactured cardboard boxes and tin cans on an industrial scale. In 1934, Pepke realized that CCA could benefit from a redesign of its packaging and promotional materials. He hired Egbert Jacobson to work with CCA design director Ralph Eckerstrom and his staff to formulate a new look for the company. It wasn't the first time Pepke had turned to prominent designers to design his company's graphics. CCA had called on designers like Herbert Bayer, Herbert Matter, Ben Cunningham to create advertisements that were a significant artistic departure from the norm, especially for an industry as banal as box and can manufacturing. The team devised a modernist solution for CCA, rendering the company's initials in a sans-serif face inside a long hexagon. 
the mark immediately established visual interest and invoked the image of a cardboard box. Eckerstrom and Jacobson documented the usage of the logo, as well as the colors, typography, vehicle applications, and more in a comprehensive brand standards manual. But Pipke's boldest move was initiating what was essentially a non-advertising campaign in 1936. Papke and his wife Elizabeth, who was a graduate of the Art Institute of Chicago, both had a deep and personal passion for art, design, and culture. Elizabeth encouraged Walter, and ultimately CCA, to embark on a marketing campaign that paired the words of great thinkers with the visuals of great artists and designers. Between 1936 and 1960, CCA commissioned modern artists and designers like A.M. Cassandra, Milton Glaser, Alvin Lustig, Herbert Bayer, Jan Schickold, Saul Bass, Alexei Brodovich, Lester Bion, Jean Federico, Bradbury Thompson, and several others to create advertisements that featured famous Western quotes. The result was the unprecedented Great Ideas of Western Man campaign. A small committee from CCA would meet, select a quote-unquote great idea, and commission an artist or a designer to create a visual response. The artist or designer would provide their work to CCA, who would either accept or reject without any art direction, and then they would add the other details, generally the quote, credits, and CCA logo, which is only barely indicated, appearing in the lower left corner. In contrast to most commercial design, the Great Ideas posters all featured the artist's name or signature in order to capitalize on their reputation. The resulting ads ran in magazines like Time and Fortune. Rarely did the artwork have anything to do with the quotation, but the posters were successful in transcending the vulgar, money-centric messages of most advertising, and instead promoted the idea of CCA as a patron of culture. Viewers weren't supposed to think of the company's product when they viewed these advertisements, but to see the company as a responsible corporate citizen. Corporations very soon recognized the value of creating an individual personality for their company, one that consumers could relate to on a more personal level. In response to a growing awareness that design could be an effective tool for solving problems and achieving objectives, the United States government initiated the Federal Design Improvement Program in 1974. All aspects of federal design were upgraded under this program, including graphic design, under the Graphics Improvement Program, which set out to improve the quality of visual communications and the ability of government agencies to communicate effectively to its citizens. John Massey was hired by the Department of Labor to design the federal prototype for a cohesive graphic standard system, including a trademark for the department itself and a graphic standards manual with guidelines for visual identification and publication formats. More than 40 government agencies contracted dozens of prominent designers to develop their visual identification programs. In 1974, the United States Department of Transportation commissioned the American Institute of Graphic Arts, or as we know it, AIGA, to develop a system of passenger and pedestrian-oriented symbols for use in transportation facilities, 
with the goal being bridging language barriers and simplifying basic messages. A committee of five designers, headed by Thomas Geismar, studied existing symbol systems for transportation facilities and for international events based on 34 subject areas. They prepared an extensive set of guidelines for the development of the system, which was designed and drawn by Roger Cook and Don Shinovsky of Cook and Shinovsky Associates. This was a very important first step toward effective graphic communications, transcending cultural and language barriers. Another milestone in the evolution of graphic design and information systems was in the discipline of environmental design for the Olympic Games, at which international and multilingual audiences had to be directed and informed. Environmental design is, in short, the practice of developing an integrative, cohesive design system to provide information and direction, referred to oftentimes as wayfinding or navigation, in a particular location. It needs to reflect the brand of the organization, but more importantly, it has to take into account the needs and the desires of the people who are using the facility or location. What do they think? Where do they need to go? How do they think? What's their culture? What are their responses? All of these things need to be studied and understood. The Olympic Games are a unique challenge in environmental design. The systems are temporary, diverse, they must include a, a huge area and require a multitude of new considerations for every event and location. Each one has its own look, a different location, and a slightly different audience. New languages and graphic elements have to be addressed each time as well. Among the many outstanding efforts were the design programs for the 1964 Tokyo 18th Olympiad under the direction of Masaru Katsukumi and Yusaku Kamakura, the 1968 Mexico 19th Olympiad, and the 1984 Los Angeles 23rd Olympiad. The 1968 Mexico City 19th Olympiad, under the direction of American graphic designer Lance Wyman and British industrial designer Peter Murdoch, was centered on a hopeful theme of international friendship and connection. The five rings of the Olympiad symbol were overlapped and merged with the number 68, then combined with the word Mexico. The repeated stripe pattern observed in traditional Mexican art was then used to form the letters and even extended into a display typeface that could be used throughout the program. The 1984 Los Angeles 23rd Olympiad was spearheaded by the architectural firm the Yaird Partnership and the environmental and graphic design firm Sussman, Preya and Company. Continuing the practice of combining a symbol specifically designed for this edition of the Olympics with the traditional linked rings, the Los Angeles Olympic Organizing Committee selected a dynamic star-in-motion configuration, which was combined with a youthful, vibrant system of bright colors and simple shapes. Because the budget for facilities was less than earlier Olympic Games, the organizing committee decided to use existing athletic facilities with only a few small additions. The problem was how to unite and enliven this diverse, far-flung collection of buildings to express the international character of the games and to create an environment that would be visually effective for both visitors and a global television audience.
So the two design firms worked to create a parts kit with guidelines to create uniform components and environments. The overall effect contributed to the celebratory feeling of the games, which was a welcome change from the political unrest and violence of the games of previous years. A counterpoint to the rational and structured approach to corporate identity was the design of the music television identity by Manhattan Design. Manhattan Design was a New York City studio that was known for its independent, risk-taking experimentation, especially for music industry clients. Partners Pat Gorman, Frank Olinsky, and Patty Rogoff presented MTV with a bold, three-dimensional sans-serif M, joined by a graffiti-like TV scrawled on its face. The logo could be altered through infinite variations of color, decoration, material, dimensionality, viewing angles, motion, and could assume different personalities. It could participate in animated events and even be demolished. The concept of a logo with a constantly changing persona ran contrary to everything that designers believed was true about trademarks and visual identifiers, that they should be absolutely fixed and used in a consistent manner. But the MTV mark and the eventual addition of the I Want My MTV slogan held its integrity across mediums, no matter what abuse it was subjected to. I thought maybe today we'd make a scene that's very happy, beautiful little scene with a lot of color in it, very easy that you can do. There we go. Okay, let's just put a happy little mountain, something about like that. And let's paint several little happy trees and push. Look at there. There. MTV, the land of happy little trees. A precursor to modern motion graphics, the MTV logo played a major role in redefining visual identity in the digital age, both for electronic media and for print. In today's market, the simple act of changing a logo can be a multi-year, multi-million dollar undertaking, depending on the size of the company and the extensiveness of the identity system. And it isn't done lightly. The logo, as the face of the company, is quite literally their most valuable asset to be protected and preserved, often at great cost. And it's taken for granted that a designer or a team of designers will be at the forefront of every corporate identity design project. This concludes our exploration of the corporate identity culture from the 50s to the 80s. As always, if you have questions, comments, or concerns, please don't hesitate to email me at mgridley at ut.edu. You can text me on WhatsApp at 813-436-3323, or you can book some time on my calendar at mgridley.youcanbook.me.